Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. We have no hand-signed memorabilia of Jesus. We, we don't have his autograph on anything. We don't have a, a t-shirt with Jesus' autograph on it. We don't, we don't have, a, uh, we don't have a, a fan poster or anything that Jesus made that has his signature on it. We don't have any letters where Jesus wrote in ink his signature. We, we, don't, we don't have that. But we do have his autograph seen all over creation. And so we have to understand that as we approach this idea of who Jesus is and how he has revealed himself to us. We find in the book of John, if you all the way toward the end of the book of John, in John chapter 20, we have John writing these words, and John is giving the reason for his gospel at the end of his gospel rather than at the beginning. In John chapter 20, verse 30, we find these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says Jesus did many other signs, and he says that these Specifically, these signs are written so that you may believe that he is the Son of God. Well, what's a sign? Well, sometimes we take, we take the word sign and we say, well, a sign, it's a miracle. And it, and it is, it's miraculous. But when we look at specifically that word sign, the way that it's used, it means a distinguishing characteristic. It means something that sets one apart from all the others. It means there is a spiritual significance beyond just the act. It's the word that is used in the language of the day for signature. And John writes and he tells us that these things that Jesus did was so that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So when Jesus performs these different acts, these spiritual acts that have a deeper meaning than just the physical reality, Jesus is very much in reality saying, signed, God. And seven times in the book of John, we find seven signs. We'll be looking at them over the next few weeks. But John calls attention to this idea of the signs being connected to belief because you have to understand Christianity is evidence-based. Now, some people might say, oh, no, 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 Christianity is faith-based. Faith itself is evidence-based. Faith is based upon evidence. You've heard me say that working definition of faith so many times. Faith is receiving a report from God and then responding in the right way. Faith is based upon receiving a report. Faith is based upon the evidence that is given. And so faith is based upon evidence. There's not faith versus evidence-based. No, faith is evidence-based. 
And Christianity is based upon faith, meaning that Christianity is evidence-based. And John gives us evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. If you look in John chapter 2, down in verse 11, you find that John says these words, or writes these words, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Here's the evidence. The first time that Jesus performs a sign and his disciples believe. They see the evidence, they believe. They receive the report, they respond rightly. Well, what was that sign? Well, it happens at a wedding. And if you look in chapter 2 of the book of John, starting with verse 1, we find this. On the third day, there was a wedding in, at Cana. In, at, in, I'm sorry. There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's going on here? Well, first of all, we need to understand something about Jewish weddings. A Jewish wedding could go on for seven days. Now, I'm not talking about just the planning. I'm talking about you would plan it far in advance, but the wedding itself, and I know some of you, uh, you can think back to your own wedding planning. Some of you are maybe in the middle of wedding planning right now, and there's so many things to think about. Just, and that's just for one day. That's just for an afternoon or for a span of time. Imagine planning for a seven-day festival. Some of you are already sweating, thinking about that. Seven days. So the wedding could go on for seven days. And they run out of wine, the Bible tells us. Big deal, they run out of wine, right? It's a very big deal. That was a social problem. A very big social problem because the groom was expected to provide everything that was needed for all the guests for that extended amount of time. And so for a bride and a groom to run out of wine was to cause a grand social affair. People were going to talk. The next day's edition of the Cana Gazette, if you flipped over to the society page, it was going to highlight their wedding and mention, and they ran out of wine. And everybody was going to know, and everybody was going to talk about it. Cana is not a thriving metropolis. It's just a small little town. Everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows everybody's business. And this is going to be some juicy gossip come tomorrow. In fact, it's already started because Mary says, they've run out of wine. We've already heard they've run out of wine. So it's a social problem. Not only that, it's a financial legal problem. Because the whole wedding feast was considered part of a wedding gift from the groom to not only the bride's family, but also the society as a whole. And to run out of wine put him in legal jeopardy. The bride's family could come back to him and say, you ran out of wine. You said you could provide for our child. You said you could provide for our daughter. You said you could take care of her. Clearly you can't. You lied. We're suing you for damages. That could happen. So it's a social problem, a financial problem, a legal problem. And there's also a joy problem going on because all throughout the Bible you find wine connected with joy and the blessings of God. And the rabbis understood that this was a connection. 
And so to run out of wine at the wedding before the honeymoon was to say, this, these two haven't even made it out and got on the, the plane to Bermuda and already there is trouble, trouble in paradise because they've run out of joy. They've already run out of joy. So there's a lot of things involved with this running out of wine. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. And then you look at Jesus, look at his response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, some have said, well, Jesus is being rude. No, he's not being rude. He is being abrupt, but he's not being rude. Because what we find throughout this sign here at the wedding at Cana, we find Jesus giving these who were present, as well as us who are reading this years later, just a little taste of glory. This is a sign to let them know he's the son of God. And this, at this wedding feast, this sign that Jesus performs is just a little way of saying, let me show you how things work in my kingdom. Let me show you how things work under the Messiah's rule. Let me give you a little taste of what's to come. And the first thing Jesus does is Jesus reorders our priorities. Mary says they've run out of wine. Now Jesus, as the firstborn, that makes sense that she would go and talk to him. They've run out of wine. You need to do something. Maybe do you need to run down to the Cana Quickie Mart and pick up a couple of bottles? Jesus. Now, now some have said, Mary knows he's going to perform a miracle. There's no evidence of that. There's nothing that says, you know, it, you don't see Mary saying, they've run out of wine. Do the little thing you do at dinner sometimes when we run out of wine. You don't see that. But Mary goes to him and says, they've run out of wine. And Jesus says, woman. It's interesting because John, two times before this, in the opening verses, has referred to Mary as the mother of Jesus. The mother of Jesus. And now Jesus looks at her and says, not mom, not mother, but woman. Now, it's probably not a rude woman. It's probably more of a woman. What does this have to do with me? Now, he's not being rude, but he is doing something here. He's creating some distance between her concern and his purpose, between her desires and the will of God. And he's reordering the priorities is what he's doing. He's saying, listen, this is a human concern. I got bigger fish to fry. There are more important things that I am concerned about. He's saying that human expectations can't override God's command. And by the way, he's saying, listen, mom, woman, the will of my father overrides your will or anybody else's will. The will of my father overrides your expectations and everybody else's expectations. Your expectations, Mary, and my father's expectations can't be placed on the same level because I am serving my heavenly father. This is what Jesus says later in the book of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Jesus is saying when it comes down to what God the Father desires and what your earthly parents desire, you have to follow God the Father. When it comes down to the will of your children over the will of the Father, you choose the will of the Father. When it comes down to what the world says is the way that you should live versus the way that our Heavenly Father says we're to live, it's the will of the Father. And Jesus is saying, let me give you a taste of what it's like to follow the Messiah. Your priorities have to be reordered. They cannot remain the same. John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm doing God's will. I'm doing my Father's will. And he says, my hour has not yet come. It's not yet time for me to step into the purpose and the plan of God and going to the cross yet. What does this have to do with me? I'm creating some distance here. There's also another little subtle thing that's going on here. Mom, I was the son of God long before I was your son. I am the son of God, and I have been the son of God for all eternity past. I've been your son for the last 30 years. The will of my father will take precedence. The will of my father takes precedent over your will. I'm reordering the priorities. By the way, when we look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, we find that Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You ever think about this? In Jesus, all things consist, all things hold together, all things are sustained by his power. So when Mary was holding Jesus in her arms, Jesus was holding her together. When Mary was was holding and upholding him, his little body, and supporting him, by his will, her molecules were staying together. Not only her molecules, but everything in the universe was continuing to function as intended by an act of his will. Jesus reorders our priorities. He reorders our expectations. He reorders our relationships. So many times I hear people say, well, Jesus was a good moral teacher. You can't relate to him as a good moral teacher. He says, you have to relate to me as Messiah. Yeah, but I think he's a good example. You just can't relate to him just as an example. You have to relate to him as Messiah. Oh, well, I see Jesus more as a friend. Well, the Bible says he is a friend. But you also have to relate to him primarily as Messiah. He is the one who has come from God. He is the son of God. Jesus in this act is reordering our priorities. But not only that, there's something even greater going on. Look at what Mary says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now some have interpreted that, I think, the wrong way. Some have said, Mary goes to Jesus and says, they've run out of wine. Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? And some have said, then Mary says, uh-huh, we'll see. And goes over to the servant and says, just do whatever he tells you. He'll, he'll do something because he'll, he'll do it for his mama. That's not what the text bears out. It is as though Mary gets an understanding, though, more or less, at least some understanding of what Jesus is saying. And she goes over and says, you just do whatever he says. Notice the shift. There's all sorts of shifts that take place throughout this. 
We've had this first shift that takes place from, from the physical to the spiritual, right? Between the priorities of earth and the priorities of heaven. And now we have another shift coming on. And Mary is there, and, and Mary has been asking Jesus, Jesus, they've run out of wine. You need to do something. And he says, what does it have to do with me? Now she quits talking to Jesus, and she goes to the servants, and she says, just do whatever he says. Well, how many problems can be solved if we just did what Mary told the servants? Whatever he says to do, just do it. Whatever Jesus says, just, just, just obey him. Just do it. Don't question. Just do it. But we find that in verse 6, it says there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. We'll come back to that in a moment. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And if you know how the story goes, he transforms the water into wine. Because in this, he is renewing all creation. That's that little taste. That's that glimpse. Jesus, as the Messiah, renews all creation. And there's a renewal that takes place right here. Now, we know of Jesus on the grand cosmic scale as creator. We find that throughout the Bible. Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created. All things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. John reiterates that idea back in John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So on the grand cosmic scale, we know of Jesus as creator, but now here we have creation in a bottle. We have creation in these stone jars. And it takes place on a small scale. I heard a pastor one time say, well, you know, what Jesus did was just, all Jesus did was accelerate the natural process. Time out, buddy. Have you ever looked at how wine is made? You can pour wine in some jars and you can wait as long as you want to wait. You just get old water. You don't get wine. That's not, he did not accelerate some natural process that would have occurred anyway. No, they feel, he's doing a, an act of creation here. There is a literal creation that takes place. Fill these jars up with water. And then Jesus says, now draw it out and take it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast, that was the person who was responsible. That wasn't the bridegroom, but that was the person who was responsible for seating everybody, for arranging the courses, for tasting the wine, for tasting the food before it went out. They, was, they were responsible for all of the festivities. And so he says, go take it to the master of the feast. Jesus is doing an act of creation here. He makes water into wine. And I know some people have said, he made water into grape juice. That's not what the Bible says. He made wine. He made wine. Wine. That's what he makes. There's no, sense, there's no reason to read more into this. It, it, he makes wine. And there's a change there on the atomic level. You think about how much atomic energy that would have to take place in these six stone jars with 20 to 30 gallons of water in there. Coal fusion's got nothing on this. This is an amazing act. And notice in this one act, you say, yeah, big deal. He makes water into wine. No, it's a really big deal. Because he shows, first of all, he's the creator and he's the master over time. 
Because it would have taken, even if you put all the ingredients in those pots, it would have taken a long period of time for that wine to ferment in order to become good wine, in order to become aged wine. So he's the master of time. It happens in an instant. Not only that, he's the master of space. He doesn't even have to go over there and touch them. He just says, go do it. Now take it. So he's the master of time. He's over space. He's over matter. He creates wine where there was not wine before. In an instant. He is the master over all creation. He has authority over all creation. He has authority to create. He has authority to sustain. This idea comes up again. Psalm 104, verse 14. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. You find God's word saying, you're the one who creates and gives us everything that, that we have. And Jesus also gives a little glimpse when he's with the disciples later on in his ministry. Right before he faces the cross, notice what he says in Matthew chapter 26, 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine, wine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is saying there's going to come a time where all, everything's going to be made new. And in my Father's kingdom, all creation will be renewed. And then we are all going to be together and we are going to feast in that place. So there's this shift, another shift from what is not to what is. From what is not there in a moment to what is in another moment. So I said we'll go back. Let's, let's go back to verse 6 because there's something else that goes on here. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. There were six stone water jars. Now people have speculated, what, what is this stone? Well, the most likely candidate, it's not some giant granite stone that you might think of not some big sandstone jar or anything like that but there was a particular type of stone that was mined in the area around Cana there are archaeological excavations going on right now uh, that are excavating these types of vessels and they were made out of a very specific type of stone called chalk stone it was a lighter stone and it could be turned, like, uh, like uh, you could take it and you could, you could actually hole it out, hollow it out, and you could, you could make vessels out of it. They, find, they found multiple drinking vessels and bowls and all sorts of things made out of chalk stone. And that was important because a stone vessel was not subject to lose its ritualistic purity, meaning that you would not, not have to go through a long process of purifying a vessel if it was made out of stone. If it was made out of chalk stone, you wouldn't have to go through all of that process. Also, if certain vessels became ritualistically unclean for the Jews, they were to throw them away or burn them or be, or be rid of them. This way, you could have your cup, you could have your bowl, and because of its composition, it would never be regarded ritualistically unclean. 
So that was an advantage. It was a big advantage whenever you were doing something like washing your hands and washing your feet. Because the Jews would not just wash their hands before meal, they would wash their feet before meals. And not only that, many cases they would wash your hands and feet after a meal as well. Notice we find reference about this in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. And then Mark gives this little parenthetical explanation. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash and there are many other traditions they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes ask him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they go to Jesus and say, Listen, why are your disciples not washing their hands like the tradition of the elders dictates? Notice, it's not God's word. It's their tradition. It's their ceremonial tradition. And Jesus says, that's not about outside cleanliness. That's not to say you shouldn't wash your hands. You should, right? I tried that with my mom one time when I was growing up, and I heard the pastor preach this. And my mom said, why didn't you wash your hands? And I was like, Jesus' disciples didn't wash their hands. didn't go well. Jesus is saying it's an inward cleansing that's needed because Jesus is redefining what true purity is. In this act, he redefines true purity. He's saying, do you want to know about true purity? It's not just the cleansing of the outside. It's something that has to take place internally. And, and notice he's using these water pots. You have to think somewhere, maybe in the back of his mind, Jesus is thinking, <laughs> I'm going to take these pots they used to wash their hands, and I'm going to make wine, and then they're going to drink it. I mean, that's, you have to think that, right? Because then, it, then they go, they take the wine to the master of the feast, but they don't tell him where they got it. They t- now, now, that's not saying that the... We don't know how much water was already in those jars. We don't know if the water was dirty. We don't, we don't know any of that, okay? We don't know. But we do know that because those jars would still be ritualistically clean because they're made out of stone, you could take things out of them and drink them without having to clean them up first. So were they empty before? Or that? We don't know. But whatever the case, Jesus says, I'm going to redefine true purity here. All this external washing according to the tradition, not according to God's word, but all this particular washing in a certain way according to tradition, I'm going to let you know it's not about that. It's not about what goes on on the outside. Dip it out and take it to them and let them drink it. It's about what happens on the inside. It's about something that is transformed from the inside 
out. This is what he says in Mark chapter 7, verse 14. He called the people to him again and said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's an inward problem. It's a sin problem. It's a sinful heart problem. It's something that you have inherited from Adam problem. It's something that has to be dealt with from the inside out. You can clean up on the outside, Jesus says. You can wash up on the outside. You can look all spick and span on the outside, but what's really of concern with God is what is going on at the heart level. We're redefining what true purity means. Jesus is saying it's not just a matter of being sanitized. You have to be sanctified. You have to be not just cleaned up, but you have to be transformed from the inside out. This is what he's saying. And by the way, he's also saying all these ceremonies are going to end when true purity comes. When true purity shows up, you won't even have need for these water pots anymore. When I clean you from the inside out, that's what true purity is. He's redefining true purity. There's this shift again from this external to the internal. There's all these shifts that are taking place. And so then the wine arrives at the master of the feast's lips. Verse 9, when the master of the feast tasted the wine now become water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. Remember what we said earlier? We said earlier that the rabbis understood that there's a wine joy connection. In a very real way, Jesus is pointing toward this restoration of lasting joy and we're gonna let's kind of go through that here he restores lasting joy so the one who orders the universe has just sent wine to the one who orders the party and the master of the feast tastes it and he's so impressed at this this blind taste test that is if you know he's participating in he calls the bridegroom over son let me tell you to a lot of weddings i've officiated a lot of these weddings as the master of the feast things are usually done a certain way usually people bring out the good wine early on in the week people start to drink the good wine they're drinking the good wine they're eating the good food and then later on as people have to leave and later on as the senses get dull then you start bringing out the lesser quality stuff that's what normally happens. You, oh, you've reversed all of this. You've waited until the last to bring out the best. Just like Messiah's kingdom. You've waited until the very end to bring us the best vintage that you had. I mean, you started us off with Thunderbird. You're ending us up with Screaming Eagle. There's something going on here. I've just never seen it done particularly this way. And this wine is a symbol of joy. It's pointing back toward the very same thing that we've been talking about. Because here's the other thing that you find throughout the Bible. A lack of wine also indicated a lack of the blessing of God. And thus a lack of joy. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 48 verse 33. Gladness and joy have been taken away from the fruitful land of Moab. 
I have made the wine cease from the wine presses. No one treads them with shouts of joy. The shouting is not the shout of joy. Oh, through the Bible, you find the removal of that blessing is, is the removal of joy. Not only that, you find that the presence of it symbolizes God's blessing. Look at Jeremiah 31, verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock, the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden. They shall languish no more. Then shall the young women rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. God's going to restore lasting joy. And notice, it's by his presence that he's going to do that. It's God's presence among his people. And God's presence among his people brings joy. This is what you find in Psalm 16, verse 11. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. Jesus, that, that same idea, we also find Jesus says to abide in his words and let his words abide in us. And he says, and then in doing so, John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Just as those water vessels were filled to the brim, Jesus said, fill them to the brim. He is going to restore true joy one day and we will be completely and totally filled with joy. In the messianic kingdom, blessings are abundant. Joy is ever present. That's what we find throughout scripture. Listen to this, listen to this beautiful description. Isaiah 25, verse 6. This beautiful description of Messiah's kingdom. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation." There's going to be this restoration of true joy. There is going to be a reverse of the curse. There's a new creation. There will be a messianic override. And just as that master of the feast said, hey, you saved the best till last. Yes, the best is yet to come. The best comes at the end. And right now we get a taste of glory pointing toward joy that is going to be in the fullest. We're shifting from a messy now to a greater later. You don't have your best life now. No, you have your best life later, then, in the messianic kingdom. And that is what Jesus points toward. This one act. Oh yeah, he makes water into wine. Yes, but there's so much more going on there. And that's why we find in verse 11, it says that, and his disciples believed in him. They believed him. They believed in him. They believed in his name. They believed he was who he says he was. That's the son of God. 
And all of this, all of this points toward another event, another greater later out there on the future horizon. Because those who are followers of Christ, we're all going to be gathered to another wedding feast. We're all going to come together. If this little wedding feast was just a taste, a glimpse of the glory that is to come, what is that ultimate glory? Well, there will be an ultimate wedding feast. When Jesus, as the bridegroom, is united with his bride, that is the church, his people, his followers, what does that look like? Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is true. This is evidence. This is the report upon which you can base your response. This is the fullness of the joy. This is the messianic override that has taken place. This is the restored creation. This is the restored relationship. This is the appropriate priority. Everything has been brought back to the main point again, and that is the worship of God as God. That's what Jesus did at the wedding feast. It was just a taste of glory. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, how are you invited if you're a follower of Christ? How do you become a follower of Christ? You trust the evidence that he has given. That he is the Son of God. That he is sinless. That we are sinful and we are separated from him. And we'll spend an eternity separated from him in hell without his saving grace. And so we cast ourselves upon his mercy. And we trust his sacrifice that there is clear evidence for. The sacrifice that he made on a cross on our behalf. And we come to him by faith, receiving the report and responding the right way. Jesus, I am a sinner. I am in need of salvation. And I believe you died and rose again to provide salvation for me so that I can know God that's how you're invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to be a part of that. Can I just tell you? I am going to be a part of that. That's not arrogance talking. That's grace talking. Because I know that he is the Son of God. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name signed God Lord God we come before you and as we come before you we're humbled we're humbled by your greatness we're humbled by your goodness we're humbled by your revelation of yourself to us 
And Father, there may be people here today, maybe people watching or listening either now or later, who would say, I don't, I don't know that I would be invited to that marriage supper. I've never made a decision to follow Christ. Maybe there are people here who have been considering it. Maybe some that have never even heard that truth before. Father God, I pray today would be the day they would respond to the evidence that Jesus is your son and that you sent him living a sinless life and dying our death, the death we deserved on the cross so that by believing on his name, we might have life. We might have eternal life. Father, there may be people here today that, Lord, they're wrestling. Maybe they've already made a decision to follow Christ. And right now they're wrestling through some really, some really dark valleys a really shadowed path. And, and they're finding it hard to remember that there's a greater later. Father, I pray that by your word, you might give them great encouragement for that next step. Give them that light for that next step of faith. Not blind faith, but because of the evidence of your word. And Father, I pray that each of us would look at your word, look at what we talked about today, and we would be struck with wonder and awe, and that our faith would be strengthened, knowing that you have given evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, we give you thanks for that revelation. And Father, we pray that now, if anybody has a desire to respond, you're knocking on that door of their heart. Father, I pray today would be the day they would say yes to whatever it is, whether it's to receive you as Savior, join the church, to, to come forward to talk about being baptized sometime, or maybe just to come to the altar and pray. Pray for our own family, pray for ourselves, pray for our loved ones, our friends. Whatever it is, Lord God, we pray that in this time you would have the freedom to move in us and through us as you see fit to bring you the most glory possible. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.